All right. And happy Father's Day to all the dads here as well, and dads-to-be, and uh, those that are spiritual dads as well. Happy Family Day, actually, and uh, thank you for being here. If you are visiting us uh, again for the first time, we are so glad that you're here. If you're coming back after some time of absence as well, we are delighted to have you as well. It's a joy to see you this uh, morning. And um, yeah, I have, a, I have a message that I'd like to share with you that is related to actually fatherhood, but also it would be very applicable to uh, just the parenthood as a whole, mothers as well, and certainly um, dads. And I'd like to just plunge in because it's kind of a, a complex uh, theme and a passage. So I want to uh, lead us to First um, Chronicles chapter 13. My apologies to Marlene. I, I neglected to send you the uh, reading. So I'm going to be looking at First Chronicles 13 and actually 15 as well later on. I'm going to be taking, you know, uh, pieces of uh, these long passages. And uh, it, it's a well-known story, actually. And let me give you a little bit of background uh, regarding it as well. Uh, just uh, this Thursday, I was scheduled to give a teaching to our worship team, you know, regarding, of course, uh, worship and leading uh, spiritually in worship and the, the things that are necessary to inspire and to be spiritually charged in order to do a good job at worship. And the Lord, I mean, very sovereignly led me to uh, this passage of David bringing the ark back to Jerusalem after a time of exile of the ark um, outside of uh, the city of David. And um, you know, yesterday as I prayed uh, and sought counsel from the Lord regarding um, what to bring, and I felt that I needed to do something very directly related to fatherhood because of the day that we are uh, experiencing today, you know, the Lord brought back that passage to me. And even though it may seem kind of counterintuitive and not necessarily related to fatherhood, I hope I'll make the connection uh, very clear to you. And you will see um, how this relates to being a spiritual father. And I'm sure that our ladies also can uh, connect it to motherhood as well. And I will be speaking actually about fatherhood and motherhood and uh, marriage and how that affects also, you know, the health of our home and of our children and so on and so forth. And by the way, the notes, uh, you can find the notes, very schematic notes that I put into the, um, you know, they're in the website. You can go to lionofjudah.org and there's a place there for sermon notes, and, uh, you know, the, the sermon notes of uh, today uh, will be there, and you can just follow me. I, I, as I say, I always take a lot of liberties with my notes, but generally I cover most of the material that um, I intend to, you know, through those notes. So pray that the Lord will give me the spirit of uh, brevity and that I will be able to preach in a compact sort of way because it can really get um, complicated. But anyway, let's go to First Chronicles chapter 13. Um, and uh, in, in verse, uh, verse uh, 2, uh, it says that, uh, well, let's go to the, the verse 1. David conferred, that means he consulted with each of his officers, that is the, his military men, the commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds. He then said to the whole assembly of Israel, if it seems good to you, and if it is the will of the Lord our God, let us send word far and wide to the rest of our people throughout the territories of Israel and also to the priests and Levites who are with them in their towns and pasture lands 
to come and join us. He, he was seeing this bringing back the ark as a national event. Interestingly enough, you'll notice also that he may have seen it as a military um, matter. And this is why he consults his officers and military men. Because, uh, you know, he sees probably the ark as a, a source of power to be brought. And the, the, actually, the Israelites would bring the ark into war as a sign of God's presence and, you know, uh, support and the presence of the power of God within the armies of Israel. So it's not surprising that he would consult with each of his officers and so on. And then the whole assembly. He wanted this to be a national affair. And then verse 3, it says, Let us bring the ark of our God back to us. For we did not inquire of it during the reign of Saul. You might remember the story that um, the ark uh, was in, in the tabernacle in Shiloh many, many years before. And uh, the, the um, high priest, Eli, and his children, who were also uh, priests, had fallen into systematic, persistent sin and had offended God in such a way that God sort of took his blessing from the ark. Because after all, it wasn't the, the furniture that the ark represented. It was what was contained in it, the blessing, the affirmation of God. So he just took it away, as he did with the temple years afterwards. And uh, in, a, in a war with the Philistines, uh, in which uh, the Israelites had taken the ark, again, that symbol of uh, God's blessing, but we know that, you know, the Christian life and the life of power is not about rituals. It's not about um, external things. They thought, oh, we have the ark, but they didn't have the essence of the ark. Churches can have the rituals uh, of religion, but may not have the power, the actual essence of the power of God. And so they take the ark into, the, into uh, war and uh, thinking very confidently that they will have the same kind of record, that they will continue of victories, but they are defeated. And the ark is taken by the Philistines back, or is it the, I believe it is the Philistines, back to their, their land. And it is held captive there. And God, uh, it's, a, it's a fascinating story. Um, he strikes the Philistines with um, a plague. They... Um, they realize that this is still a sacred object. They send it back in a very interesting sort of way back to Israel. And um, the ark then is deposited somewhere and lays, lies there uh, in oblivion, forgotten for many, many years. This is also a sign of the, the whole the spiritual um, weakness of uh, the Israelites, and it, particularly during Saul's rain and uh, the ark is neglected the ark is in a storage in a in a home uh, where it was put away and then david becomes king he has a he has an opportunity to consolidate his kingdom and uh, a few probably months after his uh, entering into kingship he remembers the ark and says wow here's the, this ark you know neglected this is the symbol of god's power uh, why should it be in uh, oblivion, let's bring it back into Israel, into the fullness of its uh, place. And uh, so David, realizing what a powerful thing the ark is and, and uh, what a source of uh, strength and spiritual vitality the ark is, decides to bring it back to the city of David. And this is what we are seeing here. This is why he's saying, let us bring the ark of our God back to us. For we did not inquire of it during the reign of of Saul. And by the way, he's, <clears throat> I think he's suggesting that the ark is also a place of uh, illumination, of guidance from God, 
of uh, holy uh, <clears throat> divination. Excuse me. So the whole assembly agreed to do this. This is verse 4, because it seemed right to all the people. So David assembles all the people of Israel and prepares a big, you know, event for it. Um, and so they moved the ark of God from Abinadab's house. That's, that's where it had been in storage, verse 7, with Uzzah and Ayo guiding it. David and all the Israelites were celebrating with all their might before God, with songs and with harps, lyres, timbrels, cymbals, and trumpets, instruments of the time. And notice something, just a little freebie here. Worship is accompanied by joy. It's accompanied by a multiplicity of instruments. It's accompanied by great celebration. When we come to worship the Lord and His presence, we need to muster that kind of enthusiasm. And that kind of expectation that God will be glorified as we worship him enthusiastically. <clears throat> so, uh, you know, uh, there's a problem because uh, it says, When they came to the threshing floor of Kidon, Uzzah, verse 9, reached out his hand to steady the ark because the oxen stumbled. And the, the Lord's anger burned against Uzzah and he struck him down because he had put his hand on the ark. So he died there before God. What a terrible disappointment. What a failure. You know, here are these, I can, I can only imagine that moment. People are feasting, celebrating. They're happy. They're enthusiastic. They are convinced that they're pleasing God by doing this. They've gone through great effort. They have uh, sort of um, mobilized the whole nation. And in the middle of the moment of greatest enthusiasm, there's a little problem. The ark begins to tumble and uh, to shake, and Uzzah and, and uh, uh, Io, I think it was, what is his name, um, Uzzah and, uh, forgive me, well, in any case, uh, Uzzah is the one who holds the ark and um, touches it in an inappropriate sort of way. Now, this ark, again, embodies the, the uh, power of God. And uh, even though it has been in oblivion, it is still there. And he falls dead, throwing cold water upon this great celebration. And uh, David is devastated by that. So in uh, verse 12, it says that David was afraid of God that day and asked, how can I ever bring the ark of God to me? He did not take the ark to be with him in the city of David. So he, um, he is uh, disappointed. He sees this thing as a failure. He's intimidated. And uh, he gives up. You know, by the way, this, very much, uh, this passage um, is very much in synchrony with this whole thing of uh, resilience that I've been talking about. Because David overcomes a moment of failure. We'll see how later. He is not permanently disappointed or intimidated. He recovers from it. And then he does things the right way because the problem was that they, they did not follow the directions of how to handle the ark, the presence of God properly. And, you know, this is probably an expression of the ignorance that uh, was uh, prevalent, that was, you know, uh, in, at play in Israel. I mean, it's like these people don't understand. They haven't read the scriptures. You know, during, during Saul's time, 
a very unspiritual man, apparently all of these things had been neglected. There was no knowledge of how to bring in the glory of God into the city. There was ignorance. And ignorance led to failure. And it, it tells me something about the fact, you know, that we need to be instructed. Congregations need to be instructed. We need to be instructed as to how to bring the ark of God, the presence of God, into our churches. But more importantly, this is the, really my point here, bringing the ark of God, the presence of God, the power of God, the blessing of God into our homes. And this is really what uh, motivated me here. And you'll see that there's a, there's a piece in this whole narrative regarding family and marriage and home that is very significant. And uh, so, but I'll, I'll, get, I'll get into that in a moment. <clears throat> so, extreme failure in the midst of great enthusiasm and good intentions. But ignorance, lack of understanding about the scriptures, lack of understanding as to how to bring the presence of God into a, an environment leads to failure. Not because God didn't want it to happen, but because there was not a proper way of uh, bringing that power, that presence of God. And you know, one thing that has struck me during my, <clears throat> my reading of, um, of the Bible in one year, which I've told you, and I don't say that to boast, I, I remind you that I'm going to read it twice because I've seen the great benefit, the blessing uh, in my own life, even though I've read the scriptures several times throughout my, year, my life, but uh, reading it in a compact, sort of concentrated sort of way has brought many things into my mind. And one of them, I may have alluded to it before, is this idea that God is a very uh, uh, particular, detail-oriented God. He has ways in which he likes things to be done regarding him and his glory and his presence. And we need to study these things. We need to be very attentive we cannot take God for granted just because we have good intentions. And you know, the world, Christianity is full of people who think that just because they have good intentions, and, but they are ignoring the protocols of how to handle God's presence, so to speak. Handle, we don't handle it, it handles us. But you know what I mean. How to manage God's presence. They think that, you know, just because I think it's unimportant, God is going to think it's unimportant. Just because I've sort of, I'm over that, God is going to be over it. But the thing that I've learned is that when God gave instructions about his tabernacle, about his temple, about the utensils in the temple, about the instruments that were going to be used to worship him, about how he was going to be approached, about the days of the feast and so on and so forth, he was extraordinarily detail-oriented. He was specific. And he said, you will bring my presence into your places in this way and that way. When you approach me, you will approach me this way. When you build the instruments that will worship me, you will build them this way. When you uh, spread incense and oil or whatever in my, in my house, and when you sacrifice victims to me, you will do it in this and this way. And the priests will be sanctified in this and this way. They will prepare. And you know, God hasn't changed his mind. It's not like he's become more lax with the passing of the ages. You know, it's not like he was a, you know, a, a sort of an angry, you know, demanding father when he was young. And now that he's gotten old over thousands of years, he's so, sort of mellowed. God is the same. And we need to be very careful how we approach him. We need to be, you know, we need to recover that sense of reverence and holy fear, even as we love him deeply and we are aware of his mercy and compassion as well. The two have to go together. And so uh, David, in his cluelessness, ignored that and paid a huge price. Israel was ignorant. It, had, it was well-intentioned, but it failed because they were not attentive enough to how to handle God's glory. So, failure happens, and you will see why. So, 
uh, is, David um, takes the ark and puts it in another place for storage for a while, the house of Ebot, uh, Obed-Edom. Um, that is uh, in verse 13. And the ark of God remained with the family of Obed-Edom or Oedom in his house for three months. And the Lord blessed his household and everything he had. Because where the presence of God is, there is blessing. There is prosperity. Yes, there is. There is, um, pro- there is a, a special a virtue and blessing that comes when, when, when we bring the ark, the presence of God into our homes, into our churches, into our places of worship. So jump a few months afterwards. And, and uh, David is, uh, has finished building his own palace, his own temple. And so in verse 15, chapter 15 of 1 Chronicles, 1 Chronicles 15, verse 15, it says, After David had constructed buildings for himself in the city of David, he prepared a place for the ark of God and pitched a tent for it. David was always very solicitous, very alert, very diligent about... Um, the fact that here he was, he was, he was dwelling in a, in a very luxurious palace in the house of God. The ark of God is in a little storage place, in a nondescript house somewhere. And so he says, I, we got to bring it back again. Yes, we failed. You know, this is, again, this is, about, this is what resilient people do. You may have failed in your life. You may have made serious mistakes. You may have even made costly mistakes in your life, in your parenthood. You may not have been the perfect father or the perfect mother. You may have made a mess of things. But God is a God of second chances. God is a God of people who, if you uh, take charge of your life and you say, I'm going to make up for this and I'm going to entrust myself to the mercy of God, God is always willing to take you back. God is always willing to, to show you the way. And you can use those painful experiences of failure to become stronger, meaner, leaner, more effective in your life as a father, as a mother, uh, as a servant of the Lord. So David doesn't allow his failure to keep him down too long. He renews his effort to bring back the ark into the city. This is interesting, verse 2, a moment of insight. It says, then David said, no one but the Levites may carry the ark of God. Boom, the light went on in his head. Ah, so this is what happened you remember that he consulted uh, generals and military people? He shouldn't have consulted the generals and the military people. He should have consulted the Levites. He should have consulted the people who knew about the scriptures. And he discovers that, you know, good intentions were not enough. There was a problem. When he brought the ark, tried to bring the ark the first time, he used two common men to transport the ark. And they did a half sort of a harder job by getting a, 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 a new cart and, and, you know, young oxen, but that was not enough. The, the, the scriptures clearly declared that the ark was only to be carried by Levites because it was such a powerful uh, indication of the presence of God, and they had to do it in a certain way. The ark had been uh, built with uh, some sort of rings under it through which poles made of a specific kind of tree and covered with gold, were to be inserted. And four Levites were to carry each extreme of those poles without touching the ark. The ark was so sacred and was so much a symbol of the presence of God, not a symbol, but actually exemplified the, the, the power of the presence of God, that they couldn't touch the ark. They had to carry it um, with those, through those poles, uh, the extremes. And they violated all of those protocols. 
They had these men who were not sanctified even. They, were, they had not been consecrated <clears throat> for this sacred duty. And um, they, were not, they, don't, they didn't understand the protocols of handling such a sacred object. And so David, you know, kind of, ah, let, let's, let's put them on there just to help. And Uzzah, very well intentioned, when the ark, you know, you can imagine a country road and a ox, oxen and, and a wooden cart, you know, moving back and forth throughout a very, you know, rocky surface. The ark begins to, you know, shake and tumble, threatening to fall. And Uzzah, very well intentioned, reaches out to steady the ark. I mean, poor guy. This is one of the most tragic stories. Uzzah is a really tragic figure. He tries to do good, but is not prepared to handle the glory. And he is killed instantly. I imagine that God was already a little bit irritated by these clueless individuals trying to handle his glory. And, um, you know, there's, just, there's a lot of stuff there that we can handle, we can talk about. But people of God, let us say that we have to be very careful how we handle the glory of God, His holiness. God doesn't change His mind. God doesn't change His ways. He's still the same yesterday, today, and forever. And I think the church of Jesus Christ in the 21st century needs to recover this sense of the holiness, the, 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 the grave uh, implications. I have always thought that the, the more present God is in an environment, the more glory and Blessing, potentially, but also the more danger when we, um, uh, we, when we don't handle the glory. And I think this is, enough, this is important enough that I'm going to make an insist here on this. In the book of Acts, you have Ananiah and Sapphira. Now, we're talking about the New Testament because I know some of you may be thinking, well, yeah, of course, that was in the Old Testament. But now, in the, uh, in the dispensation of grace and after Jesus, we don't have to worry about these things. Do you remember the story of Ananiah and Sapphira? The Holy Spirit is on fire it is present, he is present in such a powerful way in the midst of his people in the first uh, century after Pentecost. He is there. The Holy Spirit is doing miracles. He's uh, touching people in evangelism. Um, and um, Ananias and Sapphira make a mistake of lying to the Holy Spirit regarding the fact that they didn't um, uh, give all the money of the sale of a house to the poor. They didn't have to do that anyway. But they lied. And it says that the Holy Spirit struck them down dead. New Testament. After Jesus' death. And so on. And for a mere, you know, mistake, in a way, tactical mistake, they are killed. This is an indication that, you know, this is more complex than just Old Testament, New Testament false dichotomy. Wherever God is present in a powerful way, we do well to walk Gently and humbly before our God. And as I say, we need to recover that sense of the sacred and how to handle God's presence. I see many people asking, God, come visit us, do this, do that. But we don't understand how dangerous that can also be if we don't uh, adopt the appropriate safety or safeguards as well. So, anyway, David has a moment of insight. No one but the Levites, verse 2, may carry the ark of God. Because the Lord chose them to carry the ark of our Lord and to minister before him forever. So David does what he should have done the first time. He assembled all Israel in Jerusalem to bring the ark. And he called together the descendants of Aaron and the Levites. And then there's a whole listing of them and so on and so forth. 
So in verse 12, he said to them, you are the heads of the, Levit the Levitical families. You and your fellow Levites are to consecrate yourselves. It was not enough that they were Levites. They had to consecrate themselves as well and bring up the ark of the Lord, the God of Israel, to the place I have prepared for it. It was because you, the Levites, did not bring it up the first time that the Lord our God broke out in anger against us. We did not inquire of him about how to do it in the prescribed way. Mouthful there. Very profound. So the priests and Levites consecrated themselves in order to bring up the ark of the Lord, the God of Israel. And they did it as Moses had commanded in accordance with the word of the Lord. Okay. So uh, let, me, let me just, uh, they are successful then. Uh, here's another detail that I think is relevant to our passage. In verse 27, um, I'm, I, I believe I still am in, uh, yeah, the First Chronicles 15. Verse 27, now David, as they're, as they're bringing in the ark into Jerusalem, David was clothed in a robe of fine linen, as were all the Levites who were carrying the ark. So David is adopting, in a sense, the position of another Levite, as he had the right to. By the way, David was a spiritual Levite. He was a worshiper. He was a composer of psalms. He was a musician, and actually he invented uh, musical instruments as well. He was a worshiper. His heart, his heart was in worship. And now he is, interestingly enough, playing the role of a, a, a Levite, a, a, a priestly figure, even though he is king. But kings had a kind of ambiguous uh, personality. They were both um, priests to a certain degree and also um, kings and military people. This is why they were anointed, just as the prophets were, just as the priests were. And so David is playing a role here of being a priest as well, in a way, although he's not fully, fully a priest. And so it says that he wore an ephod, which is a sort of a, also another instrument of a priest. And, um, and, and so he's worshiping God with abandon. And verse 28, it says that, so all Israel... Brought up, brought up the ark of the covenant of the Lord with shouts, with the sounding of ram's horns and, and uh, trumpets. And so here's the other detail before I get into the meat of this stuff. Verse 29. It says, as the ark of the covenant of the Lord was entering the city of David, Michal, or Michal daughter of Saul, of Saul, watched from a window. This is David's, one of David's wives. It's one of the most fascinating scenes in all of the Old Testament as well. His wife is watching from the heights of maybe her bedroom or, or of the palace's uh, terraces. And uh, she sees David dancing like crazy and, uh, you know, lost in worship with this flimsy um, sort of dress on, uh, losing all his dignity, forgetting his sort of, um, you know, regal... Gravitas, and he's just dancing away like a crazy man, and she sees him from her window, and it says that when she saw King David dancing and celebrating, she despised him in her heart. <laughs> very, very interesting. So you have this David here leaping and dancing before the Lord, and you have his wife despising him in her heart. So in verse 20, this, I've jumped now to 2 Samuel because this passage is distributed. The content of the passage is distributed in different. 2 Samuel 6.12. Marlene up there is losing weight, just jumping back and forth. 
you should have brought a, a, some sweatpants, Marlene, this morning. Sorry I didn't get to get you those uh, texts. Second Samuel 6, uh, uh, 12, but um, let's go to verse 14. It says that wearing a linen ephah, David was dancing before the Lord with all his might, while he and all Israel were bringing up the ark of the Lord. And so you have uh, Michal, his uh, wife, seeing him, despising him. And then verse 20, here's a household scene, a little family moment. Verse 20 in 2 Samuel, he says, When David returned home to bless his household, Michal, daughter of Saul, came out to meet him and said, How the king of Israel has distinguished himself today, going around half naked, in full view of the slave girls of his servants, as any vulgar fellow would. Man, if, if you can think of a, of a sharp object full of poison, you know, being stuck in David's ribs, this is it. Her, her comment is full of irony, sarcasm, uh, bitterness, criticism. She is digging into him. But David is not to be, <laughs> he, he's a warrior, remember. He's not to be intimidated. So David said to Michal, it was before the Lord who chose me. Rather than your father, it sticks it in to her ribs, Saul, or anyone from his house when he appointed me ruler over the Lord's people, Israel. I will celebrate before the Lord. I will become even more undignified than this. And I will be humiliated in my own eyes. But by these slave girls you spoke of, I will be held in honor. Let me tell you something. I want to be respected more by people who love and fear the Lord than by all the kings and presidents of the world. Don't ever be intimidated by what the intellectuals or the, you know, sophisticated people of the world think of you. If it refers to honoring God. I prefer the esteem of an uneducated elderly woman who has never learned to read or write than of a, the, the most highly sophisticated intellectual who doesn't know the Lord. And we should be the same. The church is not to be guided by what, you know, the, 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 the elite think. We are to be guided by the script that God has determined. And that's what we guide our lives by. And if those people happen to be humble, even more glory. But by those slave girls you spoke of, I will be held in honor. And Michal, daughter of Saul, had no children to the day of her death. That's what happens when you, uh, how should I say, when you despise the, the, the mysteries of God's glory. You are barren. Many churches and ministries despise, in a sense, look down upon the, the simple details of true worship because sometimes it's not beautiful sometimes it's not you know full of incense and bells and whistles and all the you know the the, the rituals of glory uh, but uh, the presence of God I've learned to respect the presence of God wherever it is sometimes in the ugliest moments in the least attractive moments God's presence is there and if you feel God's presence bow before it no matter how counterintuitive the outward aspects of that presence might be. So, um, you know, what, what, what uh, struck me about this passage again is, you know, there's this idea of fatherhood and bringing the ark back into our homes. As a father, I, and I hope you also, uh, want to bring the power of God into my home. 
I wanted to, throughout my fatherhood and my different moments of uh, leadership in my home, I've, I've wanted, not always succeeded, but wanted to make sure that I was an instrument of God's presence in my home. And uh, David, you, you see, David is a, is a masculine figure. David is like a father figure here. David is, David is a warrior. He's a man's man. David is a king. He has extraordinary authority. He is not a priest. And yet, he has this desire in his heart to bring the power of God, the presence of God into, into the national life of his uh, country. He, um, despite being male and strong and masculine and war like he also has a tender heart for the things of God. There's no contradiction between masculinity and tenderness before God. But there's also this idea that, you, you know, men sometimes think that, you know, uh, spiritual leadership, it should be left to my wife. I mean, it's a, it's a feminine thing. Um, and uh, neglect by men of their spiritual leadership is, is, a, is proverbial. It's a, it's a common thing many times in the church. There are churches, and again, ladies, remember this. Any comment that I make is um, predicated on and uh, very uh, sort of uh, marked by extreme respect for, the, for the, the, the equality of women spiritually. Let there not be no confusion about that. I thank the Lord for every one of my sisters who incarnates and embodies the, the Holy Spirit in, in very powerful ways that cannot be substituted. So anything that I say, remember, it is framed by this extreme respect that I have for the role of the woman in the economy of the church. But there is something about men also that is very special and that should not be neglected. And fathers are in a place of authority. They have been placed in a place of authority. I have not grown contemporary about that. I believe, for reasons that I cannot explain, because I've seen so many women more endowed than men in every area of human um, gifting, but God, and that has not changed, these are the protocols that we violate at our own peril, God has not changed about the fact that he has constituted men for a special role in the economy of the family and in leadership. And therein lies a tension that we need to navigate in a balanced sort of way. How to appreciate the gifting of the woman, how the woman needs to move in her unique authority and power, and how the man also needs to move in his own unique authority and power, and how we need to live in the tension of the two. Because sometimes it is, because we, do not have, we don't like tension, we like rest. So we go to one extreme or the other. And uh, we are called to live in the tension of great appreciation for the woman, and also a great understanding of the unique place, the unique role that a man has. And this is, this is what David exemplifies to me. David exemplifies a man, a masculine figure, who takes seriously the fact that he has a role, a leadership role to play in his home, Israel. He has been given authority. And David is vigilant and alert and diligent about blessing his, his home. He wants to bring that ark because he knows that that's going to be something that is going to be of great blessing to his home, Israel, and he is the head of the family. And so he does, you know, he, he, he sees that huge element and he wants to bring it in. And, you know, men, we are called to understand 
that for strange reasons, God has given us a unique capacity to channel God's glory, presence, blessing, power, prosperity in our home, to our wives and to our children. And we cannot hide behind our masculinity and just leave, it, leave that to delegate it to our wives. No, we have a calling, just like David understood. The ark is there. It's going to be a blessing. Let me bring it in. And uh, this, is a, this is an important element here because I, I see many men, again, neglecting our duty, our sacred role as spiritual priests. And we have a special responsibility before the God that we neglect at our peril. And uh, I and you want to be facilitators of the presence, the blessing of God in our homes. And to channel God's glory as David wants to bring the presence of God into the life of his uh, spiritual family. We should feel a holy responsibility to bring the ark of God the fire of the presence of God into our homes and family, to facilitate prayer in our homes, worship, to facilitate our children coming into relationship with God from early on, to facilitate the blessing of our wives. Because I think one of the things that a man needs to do is to serve as an instrument to bring his wife into her fullness of capacity and being. We should not um, keep our wives sort of hidden and pushed into a corner. We should want them to um, rise to their fullness. And I'm speaking in front of my wife here. I hope that she agrees, you know, that I'm playing that role. You know, we need to, uh, our wives want to be invited into um, co-relationship with God and uh, co-working on behalf of the family. And, uh, you know, this is what the, the Apostle Paul says, that Jesus wants to create for himself a woman a church without blemish or wrinkle. And he expends all his energy through the Holy Spirit to bring his church into full manifestation of his greatness. And this is something that a male who is spirit-filled does as well. He recognizes that, you know, he has a responsibility to bring his children, bring his wife, bring the economy of his house into the fullness of its beauty, spiritual beauty. And this is a sacred responsibility that should pursue us and that should uh, push us to be diligent and attentive about it, just like David is about bringing the ark of the covenant into, um, uh, in, into the fullness of the national life. If we own this responsibility and accept it, then we, could, we can be sure that God will back us up in this role. We will have his blessing and empowerment, even if along the way we make mistakes. I believe that in many of us men, there has to come this moment of conversion, if you will, and conviction. And I know this is real for our church. I would preach the same sermon in Spanish in a, an hour or two as well, because it is it's sorely lacking in the life of the church. Um, and there has to be almost a, a conversion experience within, among so many men in the church. We have to convert from being lackadaisical and, and, and kind of casual about our role, our priestly role in the home. And we have to convert into a conviction regarding our real position of spiritual authority and calling as priests of our home. And I, I, we, have to, we have to become possessed by this idea of authority without being uh, 
oppressive or controlling or, uh, you know, uh, whatever about it. We just have to handle it with great um, naturalness, if you will. And, uh, but we, we have to, you have to understand, you have to own that. You have to say to yourself, I am in authority in the most Christ-like sort of way. And then you have to move in it because that's what it's all about in spiritual authority. You have to own it, believe it, even if you don't feel it, act upon it, even if you don't feel it, and then it becomes part of you as you engage and you practice it. We are responsible for stewarding and bringing the presence of the ark into our homes. We cannot leave this sacred duty to our wives or anybody else, the pastor, the elders, the church. It's not enough just to bring the, bring the kids and the wife to the church, throw them there, and let the pastor take care of them. It's not that way at all. We, you, I have a sacred duty. It's, it, 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 and our wives have a significant role to play there. Again, I, I stress that, you know. But men, we have a special role, a special duty, a special authority. And I maintain that according to the scriptures, the man should have a special share in this aspect of the spiritual life of the family. We had an interesting event uh, this Friday at 6 a.m. We, we, we gathered for prayer, invited people in the church. Again, talk about inviting the presence of God. I believe that prayer is important. And if you guys are willing to do it, I would love to spend some time at 6 a.m. in the morning. I get sometimes discouraged when I try to make some things to tell the truth. I say this with a little bit of sadness, and uh, people don't respond. But if you encourage me, I will, we will have those times. So it's not just for the Spanish Latinos. If you also want, and, and I'm giving you authority to come to me and say, Pastor, you said this and this and that. You exercise authority vis-a-vis me and invite me. And then when I, invite, when I invite you to come, then be there. Okay? Because it, goes, it works both ways. Believe me. Um, so, you know, we had this moment of uh, uh, prayer and worship, about 70 people, 6 a.m. We started at 7 a.m. a few weeks ago. But they said, that's too late, Pastor. Let's start at 6 a.m. And uh, so we did. And... Uh, in the course of about an hour and a half of prayer, close to 100 people came through. We had 60-something at the end. And you know, the thing is that out of, at one point, we had about 75. And out of that, maybe we had four men. So uh, if you take four over 75, that's like probably 5% or less of the whole group there. And you know, this is not strange in most churches. This happens all over America and over many parts of the world. That churches are dominated, not because the women want it to be so, not because God wants it to be so, but I think often because of the lack of energy on the part of the men who have not been taught the special calling that they have to steward the presence of God, the ark of God in their home. So I often, in times of prayer, uh, both presence or uh, virtual, I often struggle to give men affirmative action, you know. <laughs> the, I, I, I encourage them. And when I see a man raise his hand that he wants to pray, I jump on them right away because it's a rare thing many times. It's, you know, and I'm, by the way, men, I'm not dumping on you, okay? Know that. Um, I, I think that, you know, in Lion of Judah, men play a very important role in many ways. They're ushers. You'll see them even today. They are elders. Um, they, they, they participate in the worship team. Um, they teach discipleship classes. They're amazing. They work in security, all kinds of things. And I, it, I think Lion of Judah has a nice uh, component of men in leadership. 
And I would not have it any other way as well. But often enough, the women are the ones who are always there for prayer. They're the ones who are always there. Uh, they're like the women, and this is millennial. They're like the women. Who, when the men, in the resurrection, when the men were cowering uh, because Jesus had been crucified, it's the women who go to the, to the cave to anoint the Lord and the ones who experience first the resurrection power. Why? Because God will give to whoever is anxious and willing and wanting. Um, and, you know, women have been like that. The women who were at the feet of Jesus when he was being crucified. The men were a thousand miles away denying Jesus, afraid, so on. And it was the women. There's something, there's a mystery there about the male psyche and the male personality that we need to overcome. It is an, an artificial obstacle that we need to overcome by our awareness of what the principles of the kingdom are. Um, so, we cannot allow that. You see, temperamentally, men, I think one of the things is this, that I, I, I've asked myself a lot of times, temperamentally and psychologically, men are less prone to take to heart a spiritual, a spiritual teaching coming from another man. That's the way we are built. Women are much more teachable and quick to internalize a spiritual lesson. That's their makeup. Men are much more vigilant, much more critical. They're much more like hands, you know, uh, arm's length. And in order to penetrate into their heart and into their mind, you have to really hit them hard because they examine everything. That's the, that's the nature of the male. That's the male psyche. And it's very good for many things. It's good for legislation. It's good for government. It's good for war. But it's terrible for the tenderness that is required for a worshipful attitude. And an attitude that is penetrable by the Holy Spirit. Women are gentle generally. They are teachable. They are tender. They, their tears flow very easily. Um, they submit to authority and to teaching much more easily. And that is their beauty. Their power resides in that. So when there's a call to worship, they flock. When there's a teaching, they receive it much less critically. Men are much harder to move because that's the way we are. Um, and so if we men are to give fruit, given how we're built psychologically, this is the key here. We will have to act more on principle out of sheer obedience rather than from the tender feelings that propel women to be so obedient and to react so positively to instruction. We men will have to simply hear the truth, um, react to it by principle because it is true, and in obedience we have to act on it. If we wait until we are moved emotionally, we will never do it. And so you have to believe that this is the word of God and that that word has life and that if you uh, ingest it and internalize it, it will move within you and it will do whatever it says that God says that it will do. But you have to start by faith because your temperament, your masculine uh, temperament will not lead you to simply embrace it, um, you know, spontaneously. So we will have to act upon the principled acceptance of God's word and the special calling that we have received as spiritual leaders in our home. We will have to begin the process of becoming spiritual leaders out of sheer obedience until it becomes an integral part of us. Until we begin to see the beautiful results that come from taking God's word seriously. If we take authority in the name of Jesus and act by faith and sheer obedience, we will see the Holy Spirit come alongside us and provide all that we need. For men, I think it has to be more obedience than feeling. For men, it has to be simply, the Lord says it, I'm going to do it. And if I don't like it, that's too bad. And then you move in obedience. And you see yourself walking in obedience. 
and you believe that as you walk in obedience, that obedience will produce actual feeling and conviction in you. And that it, after a while, it becomes no longer something that uh, you have to force yourself into. It will become your heart. It will become who you are, and you will enjoy it, and you will see God come in. When, when uh, David and his people obey and follow God's uh, directions, it says that the Lord helped the Levites. Before, we have this God who is kind of angry and distant from the, the worship that they're trying to give him. Now he joins the chorus, and he blesses them. And it's like that. When you begin to move in God's teachings as a man, as a spiritual head, and you believe that God has said it and he will back you up, and you then obey, you start moving, even though you don't feel it, you will see the blessing come in into your life. In time, we will experience a rewarding sense of personal authority and empowerment as we see ourselves entering into the role for which we were designed. Now, there will be challenges on the way to becoming a spiritual leader. Mistakes will be made, as we see here. And, uh, you know, this is the thing about resilience. We cannot give up. We need to learn from our failures. Practice makes perfect. We need to become better and stronger. If we persist, God will find a way and we will experience victory sooner or later. David failed miserably the first time. You know, the, another obstacle many times is that um, men haven't had very good spiritual models. We often, our fathers, unfortunately, were an obstacle to us becoming Many of us have, been, have lacked fathers. I cannot tell you how many men that I uh, speak to and with speak about the fact that their fathers were not the best example. Sometimes they were not even there. Sometimes they were an obstacle. And so we men have to deal with that fact. And that alone will be an obstacle psychologically for us to become good fathers. We have no models. On the contrary, we often have deficient models. There's another obstacle we will have to learn along the journey by experimenting, praying, reading, seeking and receiving good counsel because there are no shortcuts to spiritual power and authority. And we will make mistakes along the way. But this will be an integral part of the growing and maturing process. And here's one point that I, I hope that I, I do have a little time because Michal is a very important person this, um, in this figure here. Wives, be patient. If you see your husband trying to make little efforts at uh, becoming a priestly figure in the home, jump at the opportunity. Do not be critical. Do not discourage. Do not criticize. Bless. Encourage. Push gently. Because mistakes will be made and inconsistencies will be all over the place. And I don't want to jump because I think it's important to just to isolate for a second Michal's uh, uh, place in this whole thing. Uh, there's another uh, fourth uh, problem that I see often in, in, on the way to becoming a priest. We have to consciously fight against and undo the mental models that are playing in our mind, not only from our fathers, from our own culture as well. We live in cultures where men, you know, of, I know I come from a Latino culture where men, you know, all we do is we bring the bacalao, we bring the, the, the bacon home, and then let the women take care of the rest of the thing. And then we get home, we plop in front of a television, watch the latest uh, game, or whatever while they're cooking. They were working probably like we were, but no, we have the privilege of going and watching television while our women do the cooking and so on. It, uh, forgive me, even though I, I don't want to dump on you guys or myself, but it is true many times, you know. And this is what our culture foments, this kind of attitude, because it doesn't foment this idea of dads. 
I know in Latino cultures like that, I suspect that in African-American culture like that, and even white culture, Anglo-European culture, sometimes you have a little more complexity there for lots of reasons. Uh, but um, it is important that we own um, the fact that we have to fight mentally against these deficient models that we have had, and we have to be aware of them in order to overcome them. How was your father? What was his role? And even as you honor him and bless him and bless his memory, also realize that there were huge imperfections that may have marked you along the way. I think part of the growth that we have to experience psychologically and emotionally is understanding our, our family models and our family backgrounds in order to, criticizing them generously and lovingly, learn from the negative things and, and avoid them. Because you have in your mind a mental uh, recording playing that this is the way you should be as a father because that's what you saw. In your, in your culture, in your, the men in your family. And now you have to say, no, I have to overcome that. I cannot continue the same uh, recording, that, that generational curse. I have to break it, and it stops with me. And the potential blessings are such, when, when your children see a, an active father, when they see a man who loves the Lord, tender for the Lord, studying the word, heading his family into worship at church instead of staying home to read the, 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 the newspaper. Your children are immensely blessed, both boys and girls. Your boys will be taught what it means to be a godly man and a godly husband. And your daughters will also be blessed by seeing a dad who is loving, who is tender for God, who... Um, is jealous for the glory of God. And, and they will be enabled then to love a man properly, to give themselves to a man properly, to respect a man properly. Much of what is happening in America and in many, many parts of the world regarding homosexuality and uh, sexual fluidity and so on is due to the fact that other elements have come into culture that before were not there, long story there, but now the starkness of male absence is much clearer because there are less defenses. And so boys and girls feel the insecurities of uh, sexuality much more powerfully. And so when a man, I'm, I'm going to speak of a man because a woman is just as important in many other ways. I'll, I'll reserve that for another moment. But when a male fills the role of a godly priest in his home, his daughters are also blessed by seeing proper sexuality displayed in their father, which is not just sexual. It is also role models and so on and so forth. And their femininity is uh, buttressed. It is, uh, it is strengthened, just as the boys are as well. So believe me, there's huge amounts of uh, benefit to be gained. Here's another thing I think that prevents men also from, you know, it, why it is so hard. We also, we men have to fight against an inferiority complex that often plagues us. You know, women are so verbal, and psychologists have discovered that women in their brain makeup, they are better able to express themselves. You know, the, the, the side of language is highly developed, more highly developed in women than men. Talk about biological elements in sexuality. It is a fact. Women are wired to be more verbal. I believe that women are wired also because of the way they are to be more forward in public appearance. Men are much more careful about their dignity. We defend. We don't want to make a fuss. We don't want to appear uh, ridiculous if we start praying and we somehow end up playing a bad role. We're much more reserved, much more careful. We don't risk much. 
So what happens? In a service, hey, does anybody want to pray in a prayer service? Women, they're more frail, interestingly enough, in some ways. And their frailty is their power and their strength. They're not thinking about their dignity. They're not thinking about, you know, what, how will I look? They come forward, they pray, and there's a whole roster of women coming up to pray. And the men are there, quiet, um, protecting their dignity. Anything that you protect too much becomes a curse. This is why the unfaithful servant is uh, attacked by God because he, he's too protecting of his endowment, his gifting. And so he wants to muster it. He wants to cover it. He wants to protect it. And in not risking it, he messes up. You have to risk. You have to dare. You have to trust God. You have to go out there in obedience and in faith, and God will support you as you do that. So many men are plagued by this complex of inferiority, and they can sometimes compare themselves to their more verbal wives, their more confident wives, and they fall back. And they slowly, I think we suffer many times from an inferiority complex. And you know that inferiority complexes sometimes lead us to, not only to underestimate ourselves, but they lead us also to think that what we do doesn't matter. I mean, they think I'm a failure anyway. And it happens to people who have not been ushered into leadership uh, cultures and generations that have not been, you know, we, we tend to think that, hey, what I do, I, I, they don't care. My presence doesn't make a difference. If I, get, if I show up late to a meeting, it doesn't matter. If I don't go to church, who cares? Let my wife do that. Let the kids go. So this inferiority complex projects itself in a sense of being passive and of, being, of thinking, you know, I, I don't matter. But you matter extraordinarily. To God, your leadership is extraordinarily important. You need to understand that. And so we have to fight against this inferiority complex that tells us that, you know, I will not make a difference in my family. If I don't do it, nobody cares. It, it, nothing happens. It does. It does. It does. Because you care. You, you, you matter before the Lord. And I could go on and on. You know, uh, this, this thing about the inferiority complex um, leads us many times into... Uh, not participating in singing and in worship and in prayer. The women are handling it. That's okay. Let them do it. Instead, we have to push through these uh, elements. I'm going to jump a lot because I want to talk about what I call the Michal effect, the Michael, Michal, the wife of David effect. And please, I'm going to take a couple of minutes because I think this is, this is one of the most important pieces of this whole teaching. David is doing what he should do. Worshiping God, jumping up and down, dancing before the Lord with great abandon. He has forgotten his male dignity. He is putting himself at risk. He is making himself frail. He is exhibiting his enthusiasm before the all, uh, all the, the, the nation, which is what we want to do also. And I suspect, you know, if we are going to be truly psychologically complex, I wonder what David must have felt in that moment. If I could have gotten into his psyche. Was he perfectly abandoned and, and sort of um, comfortable? I believe that David was thinking, I'm making a fool of myself. I feel so uncomfortable. I'm probably dancing like a clunk, in a clunky way as males, as a warrior would. But he's dancing anyway. He's overcoming his discomfort. He is aware of what is happening in his psyche, but he's doing it anyway. And I think, men, in order for us to become powerful instruments of God, we have to go through the uncomfortable. In, in the spiritual realm... You always have to go through the uncomfortable to get to the powerful and the supernatural. Always. Your psyche will always trip you, man or woman. If you're not willing to incur discomfort, you are in trouble. You have to go through things that will make you uncomfortable in order to enter into greatness. So here we have uh, Michal, David's um, wife, looking at him. 
making a fool of himself according to her. And, uh, you know, I've, I've, it gave me an opportunity to think a little bit about Mikal's psyche as well. Why did Mikal fall into this kind of attitude? There's an interesting detail. Do you know that Mikal had been forcefully, forcefully married to another man before David? Saul had given, quote-unquote, Mikal to David when he slew the giant. But then he violated his word and gave Mikal to another man. And so Mikal, I think, was for a year, was married to another man. And then David, when he became king, he forced Saul, or maybe not Saul, but maybe Michal, to come. To, he, he forced her legally to leave her husband and to, as he had the right, to become his wife. I wonder if that had not something to do. Maybe there was resentment in Michal's uh, psyche about David. She, has, she was sick and tired of being sold like a, a commodity. Maybe she had grown to love her first husband. And here's David now asserting his rights and saying, no, you are my wife. And uh, you, you have to come with me. Maybe she just wasn't a spiritual woman at all. And, you know, she, or maybe David had neglected her in many ways. And here she sees him now acting like a spiritual superhero worshiping and so on and so forth. And she compares that superhero to this guy that she knows deeply in her home and intimately. And she only has, uh, you know, scorn for him and uh, crushing critique. And that tells me something, you know, about the, the, the dynamics of marriage many times. Women are very important in fomenting and uh, producing, so to speak, godly priests. Wife, you have a lot to do. You can choose either to, st to step on your husband's masculinity when he makes little efforts or to single him out whenever he incurs in some sort of inconsistency in his behavior. You may have a right to criticize because of how many mistakes he has made in his life. You may have a right to just, uh, you know, dump on your husband just because you're tired of washing the dishes. And of being the leader in the home. And you may have the right, but I suggest that it may not be the most wise thing to do. Either for him, for yourself, or for your children, or for the economy of your home. You may end up, what, how do they say, cutting your nose in order to spite your face. You may enjoy what you have a right to do, which is to criticize and critique. But in the end, you may also be destroying the entire economy of your home. Grace is always so much more productive in the things of the kingdom, I'm telling you. Um, forgiveness. We forgive many times, not because we want to, but because we should, and because it's good for us, because it's good for our home. And uh, the male psyche can only tolerate so much criticism. We have, we have the most delicate psyches of all. Men are the most insecure beings in the whole world. And when we are stepped upon, we generally will always uh, recede into... Silence, sulking, enclosement of ourselves. And you may have done what you wanted to do, but you have lost an opportunity to have a wonderful relationship and to coax your male uh, companion into fullness of spiritual maturity. And you have to make the choice. See, um, in your maturity, you may have to choose grace. Because if you choose law and condemnation, then you are killing the possibilities. And you know, the, 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 
the miracle of bringing the ark, the presence of God, into the home is an exquisite dance that requires both man and female working together. Sometimes one forgives and the other enjoys forgiveness. Sometimes it's the turn of the other to do that. Um, they both exercise wonderful godly leadership. Uh, it's, it, there's, there are many elements of that. And, and a home where, both, uh, where the energy is not running uh, fluidly through male and female, but in spurts and in violent sort of ways, that energy will emerge distorted when it hits the children and when it hits the economy of the home. We have to make sure that there's fluidity in the relationship, that we are understanding the protocols, if you will, of ushering in God's grace and his ark into our homes. And the woman has an extraordinary role to play. That's why I say that. There's no way that you can minimize a woman's role while you also exalt the man's role because the two are necessary. And men are strong, but they are also in their strength, they're weak. Women are weak, but in their weakness, they're strong. That's the beauty and the, the mystery of the, the, the way that forces are marshaled in the kingdom. And we have to learn those mysteries in order to bring the ark into our Jerusalem. And so it's always been about grace. It's also always been about men. And, and please, males, uh, you've heard a lot here that may burden you. Let us forgive ourselves. I, I've, I've learned a lot lately, especially about forgiving myself and forgiving ourselves. We make so many mistakes. We mess up so many times that even as we pursue passionately the blessing of God, let's give ourselves a little room as well and give your man also a little room and your wife as well. Uh, bringing the ark into our Jerusalem is full of perils and it's full of mistakes. And even as we celebrate God's goodness in our lives, we should also be aware that we will make huge mistakes and we should not let that discourage us we should pursue passionately being uh, an instrument of God's power and presence in our homes so this is, a, this is a call to grace for both of us for all of us and even for our own selves may the Lord help us to be David's bringing the ark into our Jerusalem home let us bow our heads for a moment I really want this to be not a kind of ceremonial thing, but a, a moment of real conviction, conversion. And you know, if you want to stay sitting down, that's fine. If you want to stand up as a sign of affirmation, that's what I mean. We have to do that sometimes. Whatever it is, whatever, however you feel. If you want to throw yourself on the floor, if you want to kneel, whatever. Do a, make a sign or you just want to remain in your seat internally but again that's why I say if the grain of wheat doesn't fall to the ground it breaks it remains alone but if it breaks it, it bears much fruit male you may not feel that oh, but you know this thing about raising hands and standing up or kneeling that's for you know crazy Pentecostals if you feel uncomfortable about it then that's exactly why you should do it this is not about, this is not about pleasing me it's about pleasing yourself if you just want to sit there because that's what you want to do that's fine too because you may feel that's that's what the Lord is calling me to do that's great but if you're doing it out of just a sheer inertia and uh, you know male discomfort then force yourself because if you feel that no I should be doing that but something's holding me back then break through that and this is what you need to do all the times in moments of worship you need to do what is uncomfortable 
if you need to be, uh, ask forgiveness, do it, even though males hate to ask for forgiveness. If you need to acknowledge uh, incapacity, do it, because males hate to uh, admit that we are incapable. Whatever it is, Lord, I am here with my brothers, and I'm here with my sisters as well. We all need to make extraordinary changes, but your word is so inviting. You are such a gracious God. You are such a tolerant God. You forgive our mistakes. You have compassion on us like a father has compassion on his children. And we rely on that this morning. Father, I profoundly, convictedly pray for fathers this morning, but also for brothers and for sons, for members of a congregation, members of a community. This world needs holy examples of yielding begin with me father i pray that your word will break us in the gentlest of ways but crush the harshness and the hardness in us and make us tender and penetrable to your call this morning father what we cannot do through mere words would you do it through the sovereign move of your spirit, which I call upon right now to move in this place. Spirit of God, break us. Those that are near, those that are far. Those that are here, those that are at home. Those that uh, would not even know what happened here this morning. Members of this congregation, reach them, Lord, and break through. Father, we need revival. And... Uh, it will begin when we allow ourselves to be crushed by your Holy Spirit. Come, Spirit of God. Redeem what you have started, what you have created, what you have invested in. Redeem us. Heal us. Heal me, Lord. Bring healing into the land, into our families, into our homes. Holy Spirit of God, a fresh baptism of blessing now. In my life, in the life of my fellow men and women, come, Spirit of God. The ark of God, may it be brought back into our homes. May the ark be brought into our churches. May the ark of God be brought into our ministries, into the way we move in society. Spirit of God, presence of God, come, come and heal us now. Heal us. I yield my authority and my dignity to you, Father. I have none. I have none but have your way do not leave us untouched this morning do not leave us untouched sovereignly and mysteriously and supernaturally illuminate those who may not even be able to understand some of the things that we are saying just go directly into their hearts and their beings and do your work father this will not be a word simply to impart knowledge this is, this is a word that is your your life entering into our souls and our psyches and making changes by this word i declare changes transformations and revivals in our community holy spirit of god we will give you all the honor and all the glory we are so unworthy we are so incapable lord we despair of ourselves even many times but you're a good god you're a loving god you're a patient god and you will do it by your mercy by your promise thank you lord in jesus name in jesus name amen 
and amen. God bless you, people of God. Let us live in the authority that God has given us.